I would have all these like memories that would happen as I start trying to cook things that like my mom used to cook and it, it became more personal and almost like a, a way of healing or a way of like processing. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. Hey there, it's Tracy. Just a quick reminder that we're hosting our third annual Maeviek Story Slam coming this May 4th. So mark your calendars. Visit www.vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash story slam for more details. Welcome back to season five, stories about the people and the things we've lost and the journeys to rebuild the broken pieces. When I was growing up, my mother often recited a Vietnamese poem to me. Gong cha nhu nu thai sơn the poem highlights how a father's love is as big as the highest mountain, and a mother's love is endless, like water from a mountain, constantly flowing. And it is our duty as children to respect and honor our parents. The poem is meant to remind us of the sort of respect and loyalty that exists in Vietnamese culture. But sometimes that loyalty can come at a detrimental cost. Our need to please and obey our parents can suppress our own feelings and identities. Honoring the family name and reputation can lead to secrecy and a heavy weight that children must carry. And when this happens, how do we break free I used to want to be a chef, so I still have always dabbled in like just cooking for fun on the side. Um, but like when the pandemic happened, I kind of was like, should I just do this thing just for fun? Should I just start documenting recipes? Because I've always wanted to do that. But I was like, I don't have time. I have a full-time job. So I played around with it in 2020, early 2020, actually. And then um, just started doing it a bit more for myself, for my daughter, for fun. Lee Nguyen is a second-generation Vietnamese-American, a mother and a daughter of war refugees. In early 2020, during the pandemic, she started a cooking blog, Cooking Off the Cuff, to document recipes as a way to preserve her family's legacy for her daughter. But later that year, when Lee's mom passed away, the blog became an important space for Lee to remember her mom and to try to mend the broken pieces of their relationship. I think my mom and I always had a pretty tumultuous relationship. You know, when my parents got divorced, I was around, I think, seven or eight. And pretty much immediately after that, like a lot of things happened that kind of caused friction between us. And, you know, it just spiraled. It was like a snowball effect up through my developmental years and um, early womanhood. And it just, I guess, unfortunately you could say just, you know, pro- progressively got worse to, it got to a point where like, we couldn't communicate with each other. Lee's mother was born in Vietnam, one of six children. In 1975, 
Just a few days before the fall of Saigon, her family was able to flee from Vietnam. Um, I actually remember the exact day because I actually have it tattooed on my arm. Um, But the last day that they were in Vietnam was April 27th of 1975. Um, They were in Dalat and my Grandpa was actually a pretty well-known like colonel in the army, and he was able to secure a plane for the family through an American acquaintance working at the Dow, the defense attache office. So, you know, after he secured that, that plane for the family, there was about 10 people that he took with him, six of his kids, two of his daughter's boyfriends at the time, um, and someone who had worked for the family along with himself, so 11 total. But uh, the next morning, they were phoned by an American, and they they told them to get ready at 10 a.m. And um, they were picked up by a bus, and they were taken to an airport uh, where there was a plane waiting for them with other people. I believe that they left around 11, and by 12 o'clock, that airport was bombed. So they were very fortunate. But the one thing that my grandpa did was he actually uh, unexpectedly left them Uh, because he felt like they would be compromised if he went with them, so he actually went by ship. The family took a detour to Thailand and then to Guam, later ending up in Camp Pendleton of California, one of the four makeshift refugee campsites the United States had set up on their military bases. The Red Cross would later find Lee's grandfather and reunite him with the rest of the family in California. My mom in her youth, you know, in Vietnam has always been described to me as like that beautiful, popular, smart girl. And I think she had a reputation that would follow suit. I hear stories about her being like, when she first met my dad, um, would sneak out of the house and, you know, do those bad girl things. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, in Vietnam, she was very, very much popular. She was beautiful. She liked to dance. She was also very stubborn, very competitive. And I can only describe it as like wanting to be like the best at things and, you know, wanting to be loved and like. Lee's mom was the second eldest of six children. She was around 20 years old when their family left Vietnam. It's a very like Romeo Juliet story. My dad was very scared of my grandpa, as a lot of people were. And um, I remember this one time, I think it was before they had left, my dad and my mom had run away together and my mom didn't want to go. She like kind of met my dad at his friend's house and they had this whole plan. And somehow my grandpa ended up finding where they were and, you know, had a car sent over there and essentially threatened my dad with (laughs) guns and, uh, you know, was trying to get my mom back. And she was like super stubborn about it and not wanting to go unless my dad came. Yes. So my dad essentially left his family in Vietnam to be with my mom. However, the Romeo and Juliet story did not last. And right around the time of her parents' divorce, Lee's relationship with them also began to deteriorate. When I was younger, around the time that they had gotten divorced, I had been molested by my uncle. Um, and yeah, after that happened, I think there was a lot of secrecy, which is very common, I find, in my family, but also I've heard this in other um, Vietnamese American families about like keeping family secrets and, you know, trying to not make the family look bad. So I think, you know, being young and having that traumatic experience and feeling like there wasn't really someone who was kind of protecting you, 
um, but kind of trying to protect themselves or like the family reputation, like that was the priority. I think it started there. The sexual abuse that Lee had experienced was silenced and never talked about again. It was never a conversation. So I, I felt like I was punished for speaking out, punished for telling the truth. And I think the interesting thing that I find with my mom is she was very loyal to her family. Like, I think she was very much like at all expenses, she would do everything for, you know, my grandparents or like the protection of the family. And I'm not saying that like there's, that's like right or wrong, but I, you know, I can't help but think that that is almost like a trauma for her, you know, with everything that she had experienced and, you know, feeling the need to do that. And I I wish I understood why we never got to talk about it. Tell me a little bit about how the relationship progressed. You know, my mom, I was still like, you know, pretty close to her, you know, with the exception of that trauma happening. I don't think I really fully processed it till I was older, but I remember because my sister was eight years older, she had left for college when I was maybe like between 10 to 12. So being home alone with my mom, I saw a lot of her indirect like struggle, like with being alone. I remember like having to help her a lot, like every single weekend she'd make me clean the house, whether or not it was like scrubbing all the toilets or be cleaning the entire bathroom or vacuuming the entire house. And I remember feeling a bit resentful for that because I don't think my sister had to do any of that. So when I got to like middle school, I had another incident where I had been molested again by another family member. Um, And that just sent me down like a rabbit hole. (laughs) And I really became very rebellious. I got in a lot of trouble. I did a lot of bad things um, as a kid. Looking back at it, I, I see it as like, obviously like a cry for help or like wanting some attention. But the funny thing was my mom never really talked about it. Like I know she knew that I did these things, but then she never really like asked me why um, and kind of almost like let it happen unless like something blatant was like done. And then she'd yell at me and I get in trouble. I think growing up, I felt because of all of that, like I felt very alone or like no one really cared. So I had this like bone to pick and I really wanted to show that, you know, I was worth it. Were you able to go to counseling? Yeah, I felt like I was forced into it because I think that the adults around me didn't really know what to do at the time. I didn't find that it was useful. And when I was younger, it was almost like I knew why I was there and they would tell me to draw these pictures and I knew what they would want me to draw. So I would draw happy pictures, you know, like I just wasn't really set up to be a successful environment for me. Um, However, I will say that since my daughter has been born, I've been going to therapy pretty consistently over the last four years, which has been great. I think at the time when that trauma happened, it felt more like a punishment to me because it wasn't a conversation. And the person who had done that to me was like, in my head, like, let go scot-free. And I was able to have to deal with the repercussions of it. And then what about your older sister? Were you able to talk to her back then about any of this? No, I think that, you know, growing up in an environment where you just don't communicate or say anything like, I was never able to talk to them very openly about those things until maybe I got older. I started drinking when I was like 13, when I was home alone at night when my mom was sleeping. Cause I was just like, I think when I was younger, I didn't understand, like, I just knew that people drank when they were sad or like, that's what I would saw in movies. And like, that's where I would start. I think when I got older, 
like after I had some drinks, I would be able to talk to like my cousins about it or something. But it was never a conversation I had deeply with anybody in the family about like how I felt or anything like that. I think the only people who really truly know all of my feelings around it are my husband and like my therapist to this day. Do you remember at what point in your life where you're like, I've got to break free? No, I mean, I, I think after I had a baby, I think there were phases of like, you know, me being in the cyclical nature of like, I don't think I even realized that I was that traumatized until later on in life. I think I, I spent a big part of my life like numbing, burying or like compartmentalizing so that I can get by. You know, in some cases worked in the sense of, you know, my career, I'm really successful. I think a lot of times I ended up like burying it, unknowingly thinking that like, oh, you know, I'm fine. I'm over it. Um, until I had a daughter and then it just completely, I wouldn't say everything crumbled, but I questioned everything. Like I, I kind of becoming more vocal about things like, or even doing this interview right now. It's like, I know it's, it's hard and uncomfortable, but I want to break this chain, this habit that I feel like my mom and probably my grandma had of, you know, not being able to get things out in the open, communicate and heal so that you don't pass it down to the next generation. Like I truly don't want my daughter to go through any sort of inherited intergenerational traumas that maybe haven't been resolved. That's why I'm, I'm doing so much of this. And that's why I'm doing the cooking thing. It's like, it's really important to me. In late 2020, Lee's mom passed away from a neurological disease It started several years back. At first, there were small abnormal episodes of memory loss or slow reflexes, but they got ignored. And even when her condition worsened, Lee was asked to keep it a secret. At the time, I I feel like it was like at least eight years ago. She was living with my, her second husband um, at the time. And he would just mention things like, oh, your mom's just like doing things slower or like, you know, her reaction is slower. And we didn't like think too much of it. Like we, in the beginning, we just thought like, oh, it's like old age until like, you know, she went to the doctor and they started doing some tests and they, they determined that it was like early on, like onset of um, Parkinson's. And I think it became obvious when you'd see her trying to write a grocery list, it was almost like chicken scratch or like when she'd be driving, which she shouldn't have been, but when she'd be driving and like, it took her a while to react to like when to switch to drive from reverse or something like that. I would say she had been progressively sick for about eight to 10 years prior to her passing. And initially she was diagnosed with Parkinson's, which ended up being a misdiagnosis. Then she was diagnosed with MSA, um, which was, again, a misdiagnosis. And in the end, um, it was determined like maybe six months before she passed that she had progressive supranuclear palsy. And I think the difficulty in these neurological diseases is you just don't know until it progresses. And it's really unfortunate because there's no cure for anything. And they all have such similar beginning stages um, that you don't really know till the end. So she she had that throughout the years. Do you remember how you felt when you first heard the news? Yeah, I remember crying. I was in my apartment in Koreatown with my now husband, um, but 
you know, I remember being in our bedroom, talking to her in the dark um, on conference call with my sister and um, her second husband and, you know, being really emotional about it, didn't want us to tell anybody. And, you know, after a couple of years, it was, it was pretty difficult to kind of not be able to talk to anybody about it or even in the family. And I think to her, it was kind of like a protective thing, but I think there was like a bigger issue that stemmed from that, like not being able to communicate. Within a few years, shortly after that, she was diagnosed with uterine cancer. So she went through like chemotherapy. She had stage three uterine cancer. And then after that, it was just like a spiral health issues. After that, she had like lymphedema in her leg that never went away and like, you know, balance issues. So it was, it just stacked on over the years. When you were pregnant, did it change your perspective of who your mom was? Like, did you feel like you empathized with her a little bit more or how did that relationship change? I had a really easy pregnancy. And, you know, when I got to the hospital, um, they were saying that the cord was wrapped around her neck and, you know, she had a hard time breathing and, you know, stuff like that, like, isn't super uncommon. However, after I had her, my placentia wouldn't come out. The doctor manually removed it without like almost like any warning or any sort of medication. And then the following day I had an infection and they couldn't figure out what it was. And then within like maybe 24 hours, I like went into septic shock. And like my blood pressure was like 40 or something crazy. And they had to transfer me to ICU. They were doing all these scans. They couldn't figure it out. And they eventually found out I had E. coli. Yeah, it was crazy. They were about to remove my uterus until my husband kind of like challenged them on it. Because he was like, you haven't told me anything about like what is wrong with her. So until that happens, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. And then eventually they found out it was E. coli, but I was there for like five days. My mom, you know, at the time, she she was into her sort of, at the time, Parkinson's diagnosis, but was still able to walk and like, you know, do things. But I think what really triggered me into a deep resentment that I felt until her death and, you know, was because when that happened, she did not come to see me. When she saw, when after I gave birth, she was there for about like, 30 minutes and then left to go spend time with my grandma and like didn't come back and like didn't like you know granted like I understand that she couldn't like do anything to like physically help me but I was just kind of like one of those moments where it's like kind of sealed the deal for me. Lee carried that deep resentment even after her mom's death. Like in the first year or two I went through a lot of like reliving of things that I thought that I didn't even remember were in my brain about like, you know, how my mom was as a parent. And, you know, I don't, I don't want it. This, this isn't about like completely bashing her or anything, but I understand that I'm sure she had her own traumas too, but it makes me really wonder like about the decisions that were made or like how much um, of an impact her traumas had on her to be able to do the things that she did. Cause I can't imagine doing those same things to my daughter. While Lee is not able to ask her mom these questions, she found cooking to be an outlet, a way to connect with her mom. And then I found that like, as I was doing it, I would have all these like memories that would happen as I start trying to cook things that like my mom used to cook and it, it became more personal and almost like a, a way of healing. 
or a way of like processing. I, I want it to be intentional and meaningful um, and a bit more almost like a, a diary for my daughter and also a resource just to have all these things that I don't want to be lost. Were you able to capture some family recipes with her? Well, there was one thing she wanted to like show me how to cook that she used to always make, which was pho up chow. That was the last thing that she like essentially showed me. Um, so I have that, but then everything else is either from memory, like from taste, from experimenting. Um, I have some recipes from aunts, my grandma, um, but my mom specifically, that's the one thing I didn't truly get to do with her, like cook with her. I'm always trying to replicate things like from how I remember them. On Lee's website, she wrote, my mother and I didn't always have the most tender or understanding relationship through the years. But the last few were the most difficult for me, probably because after I had my own daughter, it unearthed a lot of suppressed memories, questions, and resentment that we never had the chance to address. It wasn't until after she had passed that I realized my complicated, misplaced emotions were about wanting a better life for my daughter, just like I know my mom intended for me. When I look back now, it's I feel like she was just trying to survive. Like, um, I'm sure that she was very heartbroken because they got a divorce because my dad had cheated on her. So, you know, going through that experience, I can imagine as a woman who was once the most popular and beautiful in school, you know, coming to America and going through that with my dad was probably very traumatic for her. So I just remember her literally working from you know, waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning, coming back at 3 p.m., um, never calling in sick. She would put her purse and her watch in the same corner on the counter every single day. She would like have to take a nap to regain her strength to then like make us dinner. And that was like a cycle. Lee recently partnered with Tuk Tuk Box, a specialty food retailer owned and founded by two Southeast Asian women to create a pho meal kit box. The meal kit includes ingredients to a shortcut version of Lee's family favorite oxtail pho, and proceeds of the sales are being donated to our nonprofit Vietnamese boat people in memory of Lee's mom. I think people who can relate to what I'm talking about, who are struggling with trying to figure out where their place is, and even if your parents hadn't done things in the way that you had wanted them to, that you can still change the past in a way. Like I think I'm trying to change, and I think that in a way is almost essentially being able to change some of those unfortunate events in the past, or even for your own parents who weren't able to do it for themselves or weren't able to see it. I think that's a way that I wanna to try to honor my mom or like my family by, you know, kind of breaking that chain. To connect with Lee directly, follow our Instagram at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 38. And you can find Lee's recipes at cookingoffthecuff.com. And a quick shout out to Trisha Vung and Matt Young, our associate producers on this episode. Thank you. 
I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please, take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.